JT and singers, musicians, beautiful singing. Thank you, choir. Wasn't that beautiful today, that choir number? Thank you so much. Yeah, that was beautiful. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would. You see the screen there to Genesis uh, chapter 41. We'll start there in just a moment. Uh, Kobe mentioned that uh, we want to pray for those flood victims. The number somewhere around 40 people have lost their lives and uh, hundreds of people have lost their homes, all their possessions and so forth. This past Wednesday, our church sent $1,000 to an organization that's right there close. Now, you know, we support Samaritan's Purse on a monthly basis. And a lot of times when there's a tragedy like this, we will give extra to Samaritan's Purse. And, uh, and they are on the scene there. But this time we chose to go through a uh, ministry called United for Jesus Ministries. Uh, Pastor Henry Hughes and his wife Teresa lead that ministry because they're only about 30, 40 miles from where the flooding took place. And they're a ministry that helps people in need and that's what their ministry is designed for. Matter of fact, that's the ministry that we carry the clothes and used items up to the Appalachian Mountains in the big, you know, the big trailer that, uh, uh, that Robert drives uh, and Robert and Dee in charge of that ministry and, of course, members of our church. So we're connected to them in that way. So we're going to take an offering as we leave today. So when you, uh, when you see the men, ushers out there holding an offering plate... That offering will be for the um, relief for the people in Kentucky that are suffering from this. I mean, hundreds and hundreds are they're, they're living in gyms and, uh, and, and big rooms in businesses and things like that. And they need water and food and just the basic essentials. And uh, so every penny of that will go to this ministry in Kentucky uh, and uh, it'll come then in the name of the Lord, and that ministry will be there. I mean, Samaritan's Purse is wonderful, but they'll be gone in a year or so or, or less. But this ministry will still be there where people can reach out to them and uh, so forth. So uh, you just give as the Lord might direct you. And, of course, that, as I said, that's a special offering. Every penny of that will go to help those in need. Well, we come to... Number five in the series on uh, Joseph. And uh, we come to this critical turning point, I guess we could say. In chapter 41, we see the sovereignty of God in a marvelous way in the life of Joseph. But I want to remind you that if you look closely, you can see the sovereignty of God working in your life in a marvelous way too. If you look closely, you look insightfully, you look with the eye of faith, you can see God's providence working in your own life. And so Joseph now is in Egypt and uh, he is in prison. And the butler was hanged, if you remember, but the... the uh, cupbearer, he was set free from prison. He was supposed to tell Pharaoh about Joseph because he was there unjustly. 
but he forgot him. But as we closed two weeks ago, we said the, uh, the butler forgot him, but God didn't. Now two years have passed. Let's pick it up. We'll read just one verse for now. Look at verse 1 of chapter 41. And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed, and behold, he stood by the river. That is, in his dream, he stood by the river. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for always working sovereignly in our lives. Much of the time we can't see it because we're not looking. Help us to see with the eye of faith your hand in all the affairs of life. Comfort and encourage your people today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah Blancus was born in the inner city in Texas, in El Paso, in the projects, as he would put it, the drug-ridden projects. When he was nine years old, his father left their home and abandoned his mother and the children and ran away with another woman. It broke his heart, a nine-year-old. This is what he said, I loved my dad a lot, and to me, he was like everything. And when he left, it broke me. Not, soon, not long after that, soon after that, his mother kicked him out of the house, nine years old, about the age of the three we're going to baptize today in a little bit. On his own, on the street. He ate out of garbage cans. He slept wherever he could sleep. Remember, he's in a drug-ridden neighborhood. And he tried desperately to stay away from the gangs. There was a tremendous amount of gang violence and killing and, and so forth. And for a long time, he stayed away from those gangs. Some time passed... And then one night, they caught him alone in the middle of the night. And this gang beat him with ball bats and kicked him. And then they took him and drove him and to the front door of the hospital. And he was in the hospital beaten and bruised and broken and terrified as he would put it himself. We'll come back to that story at the close of the message. You see the comparison, of course, to, to Joseph. All of us go through trials. I hope you've never been through the kind of trials that Isaiah went through, or Joseph, for that matter. Remember, Joseph was hated by his brethren. He was thrown into a pit. They were going to kill him. Then they decided to just let him die in the pit. Then they decided to sell him as a slave. They did so. He went into Egypt. He refused to sleep with his boss's wife, and she lied and said that he tried to sleep with her, and he was thrown into prison. And this prison was called a dungeon. And, I, and the Psalms tell us he was in chains part of the time, around his neck and around his feet 
And his life was a series of adversities, a series of, of problems. Now, problems and adversities come to all of us. Again, hopefully not that bad, or hopefully not as bad as Isaiah, but they come. And here's some reasons. I showed you this about four weeks ago, but look at your screen again. Let me just run through these quickly, just to remind us before we look at the text. God uses adversity to draw us, to draw us to himself. If you're not saved, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, God will use adversity in your life so that you can see your need of Him. And He will draw you through that adversity. If you are saved, He just draws us closer and closer to His heart. And then to teach us. There's some things we only learn uh, in, in adversity. And then to strengthen us with His own strength. And then to use us so that we can touch the lives of other people. The, um, uh, Joseph touched a lot of lives. He touched the life of Potiphar. And he touched the life of the, the warden, the prison warden. And uh, he touched the life of the people who were in prison. And now today we'll see he touched the life of Pharaoh himself. God uses adversity so we can touch other people, to use us, and then to conform us, that is, to mold us into the image of Christ. He's always working on us to make us more like Jesus. Now let's think about this chapter. This chapter is too long for me to go through verse by verse or even to, even to go through sections at a time. It's 56 verses long, so I'm going to read a verse here and there I'm going to tell you the story so Joseph is in prison keep your Bibles open there we're going to look at some verses Joseph was in prison and Pharaoh has this dream and he he's troubled the next morning by, that, by this dream these dreams seem like more than just regular dreams and he he calls his wise men, all the wise men of Egypt, and he calls the magicians. That would be like um, people working in uh, the supernatural realm, uh, witches and, and so forth. He calls the magicians, and uh, that's the King James word for them, soothsayer. Newer translations might use that. And he calls for the dream translators. There were experts... And their field of expertise was interpreting dreams. So he, he brings all of his experts in. He tells them his dream, and no one can interpret that dream. No one knows what the dream was all about. And now Pharaoh is upset. And now remember that, remember the butler, or as we call him, the cupbearer? He's right there at, at the uh, Pharaoh's hand. All the time, if Pharaoh needed something to eat or drink, he was right there to supply that. So he was watching all of these things going on, and then he realizes that he's forgotten Joseph. So now he speaks up. If you look over uh, into the chapter to about verse 9, Then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults this day. That is, I remember now, I was supposed to have done this two years ago, but I remember now, and I was the one at fault, 
but he begins to tell him about Joseph. And he tells about Joseph interpreted those two dreams in the prison, and they came about exactly the way Joseph said it would happen. And of course, two years ago, Pharaoh would remember that on his birthday celebration, he hung the, uh, the baker and he set the butler free. And so he hears this and he gets excited. He says, bring this man to me. And of course, Joseph is in the prison. Look at verse 14. And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they brought him hastily or quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved himself and changed his raiment and, put, uh, and came in unto Pharaoh. Uh, the Jews wore beards in that day. And uh, the Egyptians did not. They were clean-shaven. So probably in the prison, uh, Joseph had a beard. But to appear before Pharaoh, he had to uh, adhere to the custom. So he shaved uh, his beard, and then he had to put on appropriate clothing. You couldn't go in before the king of the greatest uh, kingdom on earth, you know, in prison clothes. And so he, he got some clean clothes, washed himself and so forth, and appears before Pharaoh. Look at verse 15. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream. There is none that can interpret it. And I have heard of thee, or I've heard of you, that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. So he says, I've heard of you that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. I love that phrase. If we, par if we paraphrase that a little bit, it's something like this. Pharaoh says, I've heard good things about you, Joseph. You are wise, and now I'm paraphrasing. I'm elaborating a little bit. You are wise, and you can interpret dreams, and I want you to uh, come listen to this because you're such a wise man. And Joseph said, who, me? Not me. I can't interpret dreams, but God. <laughs> Look at the rest of it. He says, it is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And so he emphasizes that it is the God he serves, the God of the Bible, the true and living God, the creator, the one and only God. Because remember, the Egyptians had 2,000 gods. They had a God for everything you needed. If you had a broken leg, they had a broken leg God, you know. So they had 2,000 gods. And, uh, uh, and that was what Pharaoh would have believed. But not only that... The Pharaoh himself is considered a god. But here, Joseph speaks of his God, the one true and living God, right in front of Pharaoh. Think, think about how difficult that would have been. Here's a, here's a man who, if he says, I don't like you, we're going to hang you tomorrow. Or I'm not, I'm not patient enough to wait, I'm, I'm going to let him cut your head off in an hour. Uh, I mean, he's got that kind of power and authority. He's a believer in these 2,000 gods. And the first thing Joseph said is, I'm no use to you, but God, the God I serve, he, he, can, 
He can answer this. He can meet your needs. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? We ought to be careful when people say nice things about us. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to be careful to, to try to put the praise back on the Lord. You've been married how long? Wow. Yeah, the Lord's been good to us. And uh, so forth. Wow, what a beautiful house. Yes, the Lord has just blessed us in a wonderful way. Put the praise back to him. And so, Pharaoh tells the story. I mean, the dream. You know the dream. There's, he dreams that seven cows comes up out of the Nile River. Now, that would not be a too, a much of an unusual thing because it was common for cows to get down into the river about knee-deep or even stomach-deep to get away from the flies a little bit and to cool themselves off, you know, in that, uh, in that terrible heat in Egypt. But he sees seven cows coming up out of the river now, and they're big and strong and fat and full and healthy as they can be, seven cows. Then he sees seven cows come up out of the river behind them, and these seven cows are sickly and skinny and, and, uh, and you know, ugly. <laughs> So the seven ugly cows, they eat the seven beautiful cows. They don't get any bigger. They just eat them, and they're still there ugly. And then he had a second dream, and the second dream was of a stalk of, of wheat and that had seven heads on it, and all seven heads were full and big and healthy and beautiful. And then uh, there was... Another stalk that was skinny, it had seven heads too, but these, these uh, stalks uh, and heads looked like they were uh, burnt in the heat of the summer and they were healthy and about to die. And these seven ugly uh, heads, they ate the seven big beautiful heads. So what was the meaning? Look at... Uh, Look at verse 25 now, how Joseph responds. And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, the dream, the dream of Pharaoh is one, or these two dreams are giving you the same message. And here he's talking about God again. God hath shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And, um, and then he I I interprets the dreams to mean seven years of plenty when there's going to be plenty of food and then seven years of famine coming behind that where there won't be food and, and the Pharaoh knew how bad famine could be because Egypt had been in famine many times and people die and families die and so forth and so uh, it's, a, it's good news, bad news, good news, seven years of plenty, bad news, seven years of famine. And uh, in verse 28, and this is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh, what God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. He speaks about God again. And then in verse 32, and for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. That is, he, he dreamed that dream, two dreams. It was because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Wow. Now we know at this point that 
Joseph is 30 years old. In this chapter, you, get, you got your Bible open. Look over to verse 46. It says, And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. He was 17, you remember, when he was sold. So it's been 13 years now that he spent in Potiphar's house, part of that time, in prison part of that time. If you divide it up, it's about six and a half years in each place, though we don't know it was evenly divided. He could have been two years in Potiphar and 11 years in prison or vice versa. But we do know a little bit of this timeline. He's 30 years old now. Now, not only does he interpret the dream, he gives the Pharaoh some advice. That took a lot of courage, didn't it? <laughs> he, said, he said, this is what should happen. During the seven years of famine, you need to put away one-fifth of the grain and build big granaries, build big silos, we'd call them, maybe, and, uh, and store one-fifth for, for the seven years. And, uh, and then... There'll be food during the next seven years, and you should put somebody in charge of this, and uh, so forth. So, Pharaoh immediately believes that Joseph is the man who should be in charge. And so, sure enough, he puts Joseph in charge of this great endeavor, but not only that, he makes him second in, uh, in the kingdom. Look at verse 38. And Pharaoh said unto his servants... Can we find such a one as this is, referring to Joseph, a man in whom this is the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of God is. Now notice the word spirit is a little s in the King James, and that's a good translation. Remember, there, there's no capitals in the Greek. Actually, they're all capitals, but there's no distinction between uh, uh, small print and capitals. That's added by translators so we can kind of understand it. Some translations have that as a capital S referring to the, the Holy Spirit. But the King James translates it with a little s, and I think they're correct. It, for sure, Pharaoh didn't know anything about the Trinity. For sure, he didn't know anything about the person of the Holy Spirit. He simply means the spirit of of this God he talks about, uh, the, this spirit is with him, giving him wisdom and, and so forth. And so they make him second in command. Let's just read a few more verses. Look at verse 39. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath shown thee all this, there is none so discreet or wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according to thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand. Wow, right, right off his own hand he pulls this signet ring and gives it to Joseph. And put it upon Joseph's hand, and arrayed him in vestures or clothing of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried before him, Bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
So the runners would run in front of Joseph's chariot and they would holler to everyone, this is Joseph, bow the knee. And all over Egypt, people bowed down to Joseph, not to worship, but to show honor and respect to this high-ranking official. In our day, he would be like a prime minister. You know, you got the king or the queen, and then you have a prime minister that really runs everything. That was Joseph. He ran everything and uh, was second in command. Now, Pharaoh also gives him a wife. And uh, in the first seven, and sure enough, the dreams come true, of course, as God said they would. Seven years of plenty. During those seven years of plenty, Joseph has two sons. Look at that over in verse 51. And Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For God, he said, hath made me forget all my toil and all my family's house. So he names the first one Manasseh, which means to forget. Now, Joseph didn't forget that it happened. And he didn't forget his father, whom he loved so dearly. He didn't forget the wrongs people did him, as far as it being wiped from his memory. But he forgot in the sense of holding a grudge. He forgot in the sense of not letting it run his life. He forgot in the sense of not being bitter and angry over the injustices that had happened to him. Some people become angry in life because they've been mistreated, because something bad has happened. And, and if you let it, bitterness will spring up in your heart and cause you to be angry and miserable. And probably the people around you will be miserable as well. So Joseph named the first one forget. God, God helped me to lay that at his feet. It's all in the past. And then the next name is Ephraim, verse 52. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. The word Ephraim means fruitful. So uh, he is fruitful in the land. It makes you think of the passage where Paul said, Forgetting those things which are behind, I press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, the mark of Christ's likeness. Let's not let bitterness and anger and past hurts keep us from being fruitful in the Christian life. Well, and then verse 57, the last of the chapter, And all countries came unto Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn. Now the seven years are past. People are in need. Famines all across the land. People come, and who do they have to see? They have to see Joseph for to buy corn. Or that, you notice that word corn is in italics in the King James. Most translators will translate that wheat. And because that the famine was so sore in all lands or all the surrounding areas around uh, Egypt. Now that sets up, that verse sets up the next few chapters. And they're tremendous chapters. We'll come back to them. Before we close, I'm going to come back to this 
boy who got kicked out of his home at the age of nine, beaten by a gang, left at the hospital. While he's in the hospital, he said, I was terrified. I had a lot of anger. I didn't care about me or about anybody else. And then he says, there in the hospital, he said, that's when I made up my mind. You might think that's a good thing. He says, that's when I made up my mind. I'm going to be one of the most violent gang members El Paso has ever seen. Wow. When you've been mistreated, it's pretty easy to go the wrong way, isn't it? Maybe not physical violence for revenge, but maybe other ways to try to put down or hurt someone that hurt you. And so, at the age of 14, he joined the same gang that had beaten him nearly to death. And he became a part of that gang. And he was rooted, I read now, rooted in violence and fighting and robbery and substance abuse and immorality. He says, we were like a family. Though there was treachery among us, sometimes you got stabbed in the back by your own homeboys, he says. But our, even by our friends would backstab us. But we still considered each other family. And we would die for each other. Well, the next five years, he would look back and say it was like a blur because of the alcohol abuse and drug abuse and the violence. And He became known as the stabber, like you stab somebody with a knife. He became known, that was his title, the stabber, because he had stabbed so many uh, gang members who were members of opposing gangs. They would have gang fights, and he would stab people. And uh, eventually he was brought up on charges of stabbing six people, and he was sent to prison. And there he was in prison for a while, and then he was let back out at the age of 19. He said, I broke probation and was arrested again for breaking and entering. Right back in prison he went. In prison this time, he got in fights and hurt some other inmates. And so he was put in solitary confinement for a whole year. He only got out of that cell one hour a day. And, uh, and then the only activities he could go to was a religious services. And they only happen once every other week. So when he heard about those religious services, he was gung-ho he wanted to go to that because he wanted to get out of that cell for another hour but as he put it I didn't believe in God period if there was a loving God why did he let all these bad things happen to me he thought that people who claimed to be Christians were fake and hypocrites and so forth and so he went to this religious meeting and there was a chaplain there by the name of Gina a female chaplain and this is what he says about Gina I remember Gina coming right up to my face like this close and yelling 
And she said, you're willing to die for your gang because you believe in it. Well, I want you to know I'm willing to die too. I'm willing to die for God's gang. He said, I left that day thinking, there's something really different about this woman. Sometime after that, there was a, a person in a cell nearby him who died of an overdose. And when they were carrying the body out, this chaplain came up and she hugged the body and she was weeping and crying over this, over this inmate who had died. And Isaiah saw that. And he said, she was hugging this guy and crying. And it blew my mind because I've never seen love like that. Genuine love for people like us. You know, the broken, the lost, the wounded, the violent. He said, it shook me. Then he began to wonder if he had done too many bad things for God's grace, for God's forgiveness. So two weeks later, when he went to, back to the Bible study, or what they call a religious meeting, he asked Gina the, that question. Have I gone too far? Have I done too many evil things? Can God forgive me and use me? And she said, yes, he will forgive you and use you. He will use you for his glory. He came for people like you, the worst of the worst. He says, so at that time, I opened my hands and I opened my heart and I received Christ right then and there. I gave my life to Him. To God be the glory. Now, he was 19 at that point. And somebody might say, well, it was just a jailhouse religion as the term is sometimes. Sometimes people make professions, a religious belief to, just to endure the prison or just to try to get out on, on uh, probation and things like that. But sometimes they're real and genuine. He's been out now. He's 39 years old. 20 years later, he's married, has four beautiful children, and he spends his whole life in a ministry of helping people who are in, in gangs or on drugs, or as, as he puts it, in this people who are trapped in the cycle of destruction and addiction and violence. I help them find a better way through Jesus Christ. I want them to know, he says, how great my God is and that there is hope in Jesus Christ. Wow. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've never done the bad things that, that Isaiah did, of course. But the Bible says all of us are sinners. Every single one of us. That means every single one of us need forgiveness. And that comes when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do that before it's eternally too late. Would you bow your head with me, please? With their heads bowed, maybe in this room, or maybe watching online, I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, nobody's going to come to you or embarrass you. We're going, to let, we're going to let you pray right where you are, right in your seat. If you mean it, then pray this prayer with me. 
Say, Dear Lord Jesus. Don't pray it out loud now. Pray it in your, just in your heart and mind. The Lord knows what you're thinking. Dear Lord Jesus. You see, he's right here. Right here. He's hearing you. Dear Lord Jesus, I have sinned and I need forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross for me and rose again from the dead. And right now I open my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Forgive my sin and help me to live for you. Now, if you prayed that prayer and you really meant it, I want to pray for you. If you prayed that prayer and you really meant it, I'd like for you to slip your hand up in just a second. Again, no one's going to come to you or embarrass you. I'm just going to recognize a few hands if there are any and then pray for you. If you prayed that prayer with me and you really meant it, will you raise your hand right now all over the auditorium? I'm looking around the room for anyone? Anyone? All right. Father... Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that through the adversities of life, you draw us and teach us and conform us and strengthen us. May each one of us today, many are going through trials themselves right now. Strengthen them, I pray. Lead them, guide them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Stand please, the words are on.